This is the first week in our new series in the book of Acts. I'm excited about it, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how long we're going to be in Acts. Uh, Acts is 28 chapters long. Um, In fact, Luke, between the Gospel of Luke and Acts, writes more of the New Testament than any other New Testament author. And he and Paul together, they were close friends. Uh, They did a lot of ministry together, as we'll see in the book of Acts. But they together wrote more than half of the New Testament, just these two individuals. So uh, we're going to be looking at the, the, uh, the book of Acts through at least Easter. That's kind of our plan, and we'll see where we go in the spring once we get there. Today, however, we're just going to kick things off with the first eight verses. So we're going to start at kind of a slow clip here, and we're going to look at the first eight verses. And here's what I want you to understand, that these eight verses are absolutely crucial They're vital for understanding everything that follows in the life of the church in this early church history that we have in the book of Acts. And uh, I want to draw your attention not to Luke, but to Matthew. And uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus famously says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not overpower it. But, But Jesus says, I will build my church looking forward to this church building project. But that leaves us with the question, or begs the question, I might say, how exactly is Jesus going to accomplish this? How exactly is Jesus going to build his church? And that's really the million-dollar question, and that's exactly the question that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks up his pen to address in the early church history that we know as the book of Acts. It has the answer for us. The book of Acts itself is a product We believe here at Wayside in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures that the book of Acts is the product of both divine inspiration and human agency. That the Holy Spirit inspired Luke, the good doctor as Paul calls him, to write this account of the early church. That makes it different than any other history ever written about any aspect of humanity is that this is an inspired history of the accounts of the early church. And it's great that we have it because Luke's account, the book of Acts, tells us the story of the church, how it came into being through divine empowerment and through human agency. So just like the book itself is a product of divine inspiration and human agency, so too is the story that we're going to read in the book of Acts, a product of divine empowerment and human agency working together. You see, if we think of Jesus' church-building project as purely a divine endeavor, then what is that going to do to our understanding of the church and our participation in it as members of the church? It's going to make us feel like we don't have a part to play. It's going to make us feel like this is just something God is doing in some sort of cosmic sense, in some supernatural sense, and then we're just here to kind of participate in church activities and just kind of do you know, come to church services and and do small groups and things like this, but we're not going to really feel a deep sense of our purpose in it if we think of it as purely a divine endeavor. Also, if we think of it as merely a human effort, what's that going to lead to? If we think of the church as merely a human effort, we're going to be overwhelmed and intimidated and ultimately tempted to despair, ultimately be tempted to lose hope. Because we know, looking at ourselves and the people around us, that there ain't no way that we're going to be able to pull this thing off in our own ability and according to our own wisdom. But thank God 
that neither of those alternatives reflects the reality of what we're talking about in the book of Acts. The story of the Acts of the Apostles is also, at the very same time, the story of the Acts of God, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and the Acts of Jesus in accordance with the Father's will, working through the apostles. From the very first verses, what we're looking at today, we see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit working in and around and behind and in front of and through limited, vulnerable, broken people just like you and I. And that, folks, should fill us with hope. These are not Marvel or DC superheroes that we're going to read about in the book of Acts. These are people just like us that God works through. And here's the big idea for today. It's that the church is a divine work. It is a masterpiece of God's divine ability and and, and interaction with with humanity, but it's accomplished through spirit-empowered people So that means that we have to lean on the finished work of Christ. What only he could do in his divinity and his humanity brought together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have to lean on his finished work so that we can lean into the unfinished work of building and completing his church. In the first eight verses of this incredible book, we see all three members of the Trinity playing a role in the birth of the church. I love how Luke brings together all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here's what we also see in the first eight verses. We see divinely appointed people being prepared to play their own parts. Again, not just sitting on the bench. They're out there on the court. They have a part to play. We have a part to play. And so today's passage really sets the stage for that, that divine work happening through those spirit-enabled people. It sets the stage by, by what? By looking backward at the beginning of this incredible story to what? It looks backward to the finished work of Christ. And then it looks forward at the same time to the as yet unfinished work of building the church. Jesus laid the cornerstone I I didn't know anything about building a building, especially ancient buildings. But when you lay the cornerstone, that sets how the church is going to be built. It it sets what direction the church is going to be facing. It, it, It provides the basis on which you can form the rest of the foundation and ultimately the rest of the structure. And Jesus Christ laid that cornerstone. He himself became that cornerstone. And now he's calling his people all throughout the ages to the ongoing work of construction. We get to be his construction crew to build off of that cornerstone that he laid. So the gospel, folks, the gospel is the finished work of Jesus Christ. It it is the good news. Kids, if I asked you, what is the gospel? I don't want you to ever doubt or misunderstand this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has already died for our sins. He has already gone to the cross to die for our sins. He has already been buried and rose from the grave. He's already conquered sin and death. He's already made forgiveness and eternal life possible and available to us through, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why the New Testament authors refer to Jesus as the cornerstone and the foundation of the church. Not just us as individual Christians. Yes, he is the foundation for our Christian lives as well, but he's also the cornerstone and foundation of the church corporate. 
His person and work made it possible for the church to exist and to grow. And folks, that's why Luke in the book of Acts is writing a second volume in a two-volume set. We have to understand Acts in light of Luke's gospel. His gospel comes first because it lays the foundation for the church in the person and work of Christ. That's what the gospels are. They're the story, all four of them. Different facets, different angles on the person and work of Jesus Christ in his first coming, looking forward to his second coming. And then Acts happens in in the wake of that, that cornerstone being laid. Only then, after Christ, through his person and work, has laid that foundation, can there be a church to write about in a second volume. So Luke actually looks back to his gospel account in the opening verses of Acts. Look at verses 1 and 2, the first part of 2. Luke begins in a very similar way to how he begins his gospel, referring to this Theophilus. And I sent you some background materials in the Wayside Weekly about an introduction to Acts that talks about authorship and themes and different things like that. So feel free to look at that. I'm not going to go into a lot of that today. But anyway, it, it... he, he is writing to the same individual, if this is an actual person, Theophilus, which I believe it is, he is, and he, uh, he says this, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Now, when Luke writes all that Jesus began to do and to teach, he is not contradicting, he's not denying the finished work of Christ that he lays out in his gospel, right? It is a done deal. When he said uh, to telestai, that's the Greek for it is, it is finished. It's paid in full, right? So, so the, the finished work of Christ is not being contradicted by this statement. What Luke is saying by all that Jesus began to do and teach is he's simply looking back on the gospel as that well-laid foundation on which the church would then be built, And at the same time, he's looking forward to the beginning of that building project as he sets out to recount the story of the early church. So at the beginning of Acts, the finished work of Christ has already been laid, has already laid the foundation. And then we get to step into the story of the birth and the growth of the church. So now let's look at the unfinished work of Christ. Folks, if the finished work of Christ is the gospel that we can count on, the unfinished work of Christ is the Great Commission. It's the ongoing work of construction whereby, as as Peter calls us, whereby living stones, that is us, believers in Jesus Christ, where living stones are added to the church just as bricks are added to a building, brick by brick, one by one. And this work of construction began with Jesus handing off his blueprints to a team of church builders known as the apostles. It's not like he checked his watch like I do sometimes in preaching and said, oh, I'm running out of time. Quick, I got to find someone to hand this thing off to. No, Jesus did what only Jesus could do. And then Jesus stepped off the stage in a sense, in a physical sense, but was going to, and which we'll talk about, was going to send his spirit to enable his chosen people, the apostles and the followers, the disciples after them, to lean into this building project. And he gave them the blueprints to it. He handed off the blueprints to this team of church builders that we call the apostles. And we see this handoff in the opening lines of Acts. We're going to look at it. 
But it involves at least four things, and I'm going to kind of split up our time amongst these. It involves his choosing, his convincing, his clarifying, and his commissioning. So let's look at those. So first of all, Jesus chose his apostles. This was not an arbitrary decision. Look at verse 2. It says, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, that's the ascension. So until that day, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's very intentional about choosing these particular men. But before Jesus would ascend into heaven, and we're going to talk about that a lot more next week when we get into the the rest of chapter uh, 1 and the account of the ascension. Before he ascended to heaven, he chose this group of men to be his apostles. And that word apostle simply means someone who is sent. It comes, it's in the same word family as uh, the word for epistle or letter that is sent, conveying a message. So an apostle is someone who is, is sent as a messenger, as a, um, as a delegate, as an ambassador. That's what an apostle is. And so Luke records the choosing of the apostles. Again, it's fun when you read the book of Acts and then you also have the gospel of Luke, knowing that it's the same inspired author, you can put them up next to each other. And there's some phenomenal connections between the gospel and the book of Acts. And we could do a whole hours and hours on a Sunday workshop sometime to look at that. But it's really beautiful. So as we're reading some of this stuff, we can actually go back to Luke's first account in the gospel of Luke and see some of this stuff. So look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It says, Luke writes this, It was at this time that he, that is Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Do you think he was taking this seriously? Yes. And then what happens in 13? And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Luke tells us. But (laughs) please remember something. He prayed all night to God the Father. Give me the men that you want to have be my 12. Give me the 12 who will be my disciples and whom I will call my apostles and send out with my authority. And do you know who God the Father gives him and who he chooses? It is not the guys that you're going to pick for your kickball team. These are not the guys that you're looking at their resume going, this, this is clutch. This team is going to make it to the championships. They're going to be able to accomplish everything I want them to accomplish. No, it involved Judas, who's eventually going to betray Jesus, stab him in the back. It included a bunch of guys that are going to be freaked out when he gets arrested and murdered on the cross, and they're going to scatter. It's going to, it's Peter, the, the, the sort of leader of the crew, is going to be the one to deny Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. So this is not the group of of guys that you would choose necessarily, but it's the group that God chose and that Jesus specifically chose knowing what was going to happen. And as we know from the rest of Luke's gospel, over and over again, we see that these men were weak. They were vulnerable to spiritual attack, to despair. Uh, and, And really, after Jesus was arrested and crucified and buried, they pretty much lost hope. Like They thought, man, he's going to be it. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to come in and conquer Rome and take over and set up his kingdom. And then he gets arrested, beaten, mocked, crucified. He dies, he's buried, and he's stuck in a tomb with a big rock in front of it. And all their hopes are dashed at that point. 
And in particular, the apostles, who themselves are supposed to be the witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they struggled to believe in the reality of the resurrection, even after Jesus resurrected. And so Jesus began by convincing them after he had chosen them. Look at verse 3. It says, to these, in other words, these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So in the Gospel of Luke, if you go back again to that first account in Luke's Gospel, almost the entire, I think it's like the first 43 verses in chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel is committed, it's dedicated to listing out all of these appearances and convincing proofs by which Jesus convinced these men that he had in fact risen from the dead. In fact, the ladies... The, the female followers of Christ were the, were the ones to say he's risen. And these guys are like, no, I don't think so. And so you see in Luke 24, he really sets out to convince them. And by the way, I'll just make a side note here. One of the most amazing historical evidences to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that these men were convinced and that these women were convinced in the early church so much so that they were willing to go to their violent deaths their martyrdom without denying the reality of the resurrection. That's one of the greatest evidences of the reality of the resurrection. If they had known it was a lie, I mean, they were persecuted for another 250 years in the Roman Empire. If those, especially those early ones, if they knew it was a lie, they would have never stood by that. They would have given up Christ right away. That's one of the greatest evidences, not just of the reality of the resurrection, but the presence of the Holy Spirit, too. And we're going to talk about that in a sec. Um, So the point is simply that after seeing Jesus brutally murdered on the cross, this one in which they had placed their hope, after seeing what happened to him at the crucifixion, these men needed some convincing that Jesus really was alive. And so Jesus provided evidence in order to remove any doubts about the reality of his resurrection. But folks, even when they believed, even when they rejoiced in the reality of the resurrection, they still didn't really understand this whole church thing and how it fit into God's purposes and God's promises in the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus clarifies his plans. He told his apostles what was going to happen. And he did this quite often. He said, this is what's going to happen and, and, as, and as importantly, this is how it's going to happen. Because when they heard what was going to happen, you know, again, if they were just thinking about human effort, their mind would have been blown. They would have never leaned into that, okay? But he told them what was going to happen. He told them how it was going to happen. So with his final 40 days, from the resurrection to the ascension, 40 days, with that final time on earth, he instructed his apostles concerning the role of God's Spirit and the reality of God's kingdom. So let's look at those. In the Gospels, Jesus spends a whole lot of time teaching his apostles about the Holy Spirit. Just go to the Upper Room Discourse at the end of the Gospel of John. He has a lot to say, especially in those closing days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection, and in his resurrection appearances, as he instructed them, he talked a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit. And he continues to teach them up until the very moment of his departure, okay? Look at verses 4 and 5 with me in our, in our text. It says, gathering them, that is the apostles together, he commanded them, 
not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. In other words, this is not new. I have, I've told you about this. We see it in, in Luke's gospel. This is not new. Wait. You heard from me, for John baptized with water. That's how his gospel began, with John baptizing with water uh, in the early chapters. He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it ended up being 10 days, which we'll look at in in a couple more sermons. So Jesus, what, what did he tell them? He did not want them to just haul off and run out and try and accomplish this thing in their own effort. Why did he not want them to do that in their own strength? Or I should say, why did he not want them to attempt to do that in their own strength and their own wisdom? It's because he knew it would be an absolute failure, just like it was on the night of his arrest with the denials and the betrayals and everything else. What the difference maker was going to be to keep it from being an absolute failure was the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the Holy Spirit who would be given in accordance with God's promises in the Old Testament. Did you know God promised in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, in the prophets, he he said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. He, He promised to give his spirit. That's what we see in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and elsewhere. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit is the seal of our adoption as God's sons and daughters. That the, and this is, we're going to talk about this when we get to some of the, when the Holy Spirit comes to different groups of people in the book of Acts. The seal of our reconciled relationship with Christ, our adoption into the family of God as sons and daughters in Christ, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes us holy. He, he sanctifies us. He sets us apart for God's holy purposes. And as we're going to see later in verse 8, we are sent out to accomplish those purposes in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles definitely needed clarification on the role of God's Spirit in this this whole church thing. But they also needed clarification as to the reality of God's kingdom. And we see this kingdom language mentioned in verse 3. It says, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So even after a 40-day intensive class on the kingdom of God, the apostles still didn't fully understand what was happening. So Jesus further clarifies in in, in verses 6 and 7. It says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time? You are restoring the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So you got to understand, these guys are Jewish background believers. The church was founded on Jewish background believers who were steeped in the Old Testament. They were steeped in their Hebrew Bibles. And so they knew the Old Testament promises where God promised restoration for the kingdom of Israel under the reign and rule of this Messiah, this anointed one, this greater son of David who would come to restore Israel. And they believed that the resurrected Jesus was in fact that Messiah. They were totally convinced that this resurrected Lord Jesus Christ 
was their Messiah, was the one to bring restoration. So what did they assume? Well, they assumed that he would now restore the kingdom to Israel. And so they asked the question. And, and, and Jesus, think about this, he had even told them that they would be seated on thrones in his kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you remember this? Luke, Luke recorded it in his gospel. Luke chapter 22, 28 through 30. Luke wrote this, Jesus says to them, you know, they're, they're arguing, this is at the, the upper room and after the, the Passover meal, and they're arguing about authority, and he goes on to say, you, speaking to his apostles, and Judas had left by this point, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And of course, they're about to not, they're about to run off, but he, he's so gracious. He says, you are the ones who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they're expecting what? They're expecting this promise to be fulfilled. So it's not hard to imagine why they were, they were expecting a restored kingdom of Israel. And Jesus, please note this, Jesus doesn't refute that. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. No, we're not going to restore Israel. What does he say? He says that it's not going to happen according to your timetable. He brings in this expectation of timetables. And so it's going to happen, not according to your timetable, but according to the timetable set by God the Father. The Father had his own plans, his own purposes, which would involve growing that kingdom over the next 2,000 plus years. And how is he going to grow that kingdom? How is he going to bring more citizens into his kingdom? Through the church and the building up of the church. And he chose to accomplish that through human agents. So Jesus commissioned the apostles, these human agents, who would set uh, that work, uh, set about to do that work. And in doing so, in commissioning the apostles, he explained their sacred purpose and their source of power. Their purpose would be to serve as witnesses, as witnesses to the truth of the gospel, to the resurrection. And to serve as witnesses, not just locally, but throughout the world. But only through the power of the Holy Spirit would they be able to accomplish that sacred purpose. So look at verse 8, our final verse with me. It's a famous verse. This is one of the many Great Commission verses that we see at the end of the Gospels. Jesus says this. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And folks, this statement provides us with a basic outline for the rest of the book of Acts. Luke is going to take us on a journey starting in Jerusalem, the rival of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to take us throughout Judea. He's going to take us into Samaria and he's going to take us to Rome and on towards the ends of the earth. And so that's the basic outline for the book of Acts, that verse 8 right there. The unfinished work of Christ is to bring the good news of his finished work, that is the good news of the gospel, to the very ends of the earth. Um, has anybody been to Barcelona? Okay, if you're at Barcelona, then you probably saw La Sagrada Familia. I have a bad accent. There's probably more of a lisp in there with the... the 
Sagrada Familia, if you've been, I've never been to Barcelona, but I've seen pictures. And I would imagine it would be hard to miss. Is that correct? Like when you get there, it's, prob- it's just this towering monstrosity of a church building on the, the cityscape, on the horizon. And uh, it's, uh, it's unlike any other building in the world. And I've looked at many pictures of it this past week, and I've never seen a building that looks like Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. In fact, we have a, a photo. There you go. That, did I not tell you that it is massive and it just, it just sticks out? It's huge. And it's, it's, it, in its own way, it's beautiful. But uh, this building, Sagrada Familia, the cornerstone for that building was laid in 1882. That was like 140 years ago. They laid the cornerstone to begin this process of, of building it. And it is still unfinished to this day. There are still cranes up, even now, if you go to to Barcelona. In 1883, the following year after the cornerstone was laid by a bishop, they handed over the the work of construction to uh, Antoni or Antoni Gaudi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but but Gaudi or Gaudi uh, was this brilliant architect and, and engineer. And so he began construction. But then, like, I guess it was 40 years later, he dies. And he has to hand off construction to one of his disciples, this guy named uh, Dominic uh, Sugranius. And so this Dominic takes over. And since then, like five generations of folks in Barcelona around the world have watched this massive building take shape. They've watched it grow bigger and bigger and wider and wider and taller and taller over the decades. And, and astonishingly, it's still there, like it, it survived the, the civil war in Spain in the early part of the 20th century and all sorts of other things. And it's still being constructed even to this day. In fact, I read that the current construction crew under the current foreman or whatever you call them is actually finishing up one of the 450 foot towers, even as we speak in October and November. And they're going to put this massive 12 pointed star on the top of that finished 450 foot tower this Christmas. And that's one of the thresholds they're looking to reach. And even then it won't, it won't be finished. So this thing keeps growing and growing and growing. Folks, like this church building in Barcelona, the church itself is an unfinished building project. 2,000 years ago, the cornerstone was laid and it continues to be built. Christ became the cornerstone through his finished work of dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead, of conquering sin and death once and for all. And for the last 2,000 years, generation after generation after generation of Christians have watched this, this, this church, this body of Christ, be added to and built over the centuries. This as yet unfinished work of construction. And folks, just like Sagrada Familia, it's got a whole different set. Every decade or so, you get a whole new group of workers and engineers. At one point, uh, it got looted and they burned all the blueprints and they had to go find these notes from the original architect, Gaudi, and like put them together. And so as it builds, each stage looks different from the previous stages. And so it's kind of this like decades-old project. Well, the same is true for the church. Based on historical context and cultural context and circumstances happening throughout the history of humanity over the last 2,000 years, each stage in this building project that is the church looks a little bit different. It sounds a little bit different. But folks, the blueprint is the exact same and always has been through the ages. 
The architectural plan remains the same, and that is to incorporate every chosen individual, every living stone, until the work is complete in Christ. And until then, all Christians, and that includes everybody in this room who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, we are called, we are commissioned, we are empowered for the purpose of building up the church. And folks, if we forget our calling and our commissioning and our purpose and the source of our power, then we will struggle, we will feel unengaged, insignificant, powerless, and purposeless. So we must remember that the church is a divine work, yes, but it's a divine work that God has sovereignly chosen to accomplish through Spirit-empowered people, and we are those people through whom Jesus is going to build His church in this next generation. By simply acknowledging that fact, if you walked in today feeling powerless, insignificant, purposeless, unengaged, just by merely acknowledging that fact, our lives will be changed forever. And this reality, it infuses a sense of purpose in everything we do individually as Christians or corporately as the church. And we have no reason to feel intimidated or ill-equipped because we already have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We already have the Holy Spirit indwelling the church of Jesus Christ. And He will empower us for the task at hand, whatever it may be at this phase in the building project, whether that be sharing our faith with others around us or defending the Christian faith against incessant attacks and false teachings throughout the ages. Just like the apostles, Jesus has chosen us and He has commissioned us as His witnesses and he will convince us of the truth of the gospel, there's days I wake up with doubts too. But through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds, he will convince us again and again and again and wash away those doubts in the gospel, in the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will clarify whatever we're struggling to understand, whether it be the role of the Spirit or the reality of God's kingdom or whatever else that we're having trouble with, he will clarify through his Holy Spirit. He promised that to the disciples. And as long as we will turn to him in humility and dependence, he will do this. But if we, in our pride, and in our own sense of ability, strength, wisdom, whatever it is, it won't work. But if we turn to Him in humility and dependence, prayerfully, crying out to God to do what only He can do, He will do it. When Luke originally wrote Acts, it probably didn't have a title. A lot of the books of the Bible didn't actually have titles. Okay, we've added those in later just to help people read the Bible. Okay, so it probably didn't have a title, but by the late first or early second century, people started attributing titles as they made copies and copies and copies of this second volume of Luke's. And so the titles, one of them is actually Act. Somehow they lost the S. One, one is Acts, Acts of the Apostles, Luke the Evangelists, Acts of the Holy Apostles just kind of got different titles over the next several hundred years. But this sequel to Luke's gospel could have just as easily been called the Acts of Jesus Christ through His Spirit-empowered apostles. 
as we study this, this incredible account over the coming months of the early church, the birth of the church we're going to look at in a couple weeks, we need to remember that it's not the story of a purely divine endeavor, nor is it the story of a merely human effort. It's the beginning of an ongoing story about divine work that's being accomplished through spirit-empowered people. It is a story about what God is doing around the world all throughout the last 2,000 years and today here in Greater Austin. It's a story about what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do, what He has promised to do. Not just around the world, but in and through Wayside Communities Church, in and through your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. So folks, let's lean on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's lean on the truth of the gospel so that we can lean into this as yet unfinished work of building and completing the church, the body of Christ. Because we too have received the Great Commission. Next week, Jesus will complete this handoff to his apostles Uh, By returning to the right hand of God the Father, he will physically depart after he delegates his authority to the apostles and to those that follow in the church. And we're going to look at that next week. Let's pray. Please bow your heads with me.